This is Greater Together, a podcast designed to give listeners an inside look at how small business owners grow and evolve over time to become greater. I'm Rachel Kershaw. So I'm here today talking with Jay Klaus, and I think you and I met um, Startup Week, probably, yep. was the first time we worked together. Yep. And that's pretty awesome, and you guys, uh, you've been involved in a lot of things, actually. That's, that's one way to put it, yeah, probably too many things. <laughs> <laughs> but these days, one of your big things is Unreal Collective, right? Right. So we're going to talk about Unreal Collective today. Can you talk a little bit about what that does? Totally. Unreal Collective is a community for creatives, and the makeup of those creatives tend to be freelancers, early stage founders, and people doing creative projects, artists, people that are doing podcasts like this, or people who are doing blogs or YouTube channels. So Unreal Collective started off with just one program, which was a 12-week online accelerator for those creatives to get from point A to point B, whatever that meant for them. And that still runs, worked with uh, over 100 people at this point through six cycles of the program, I believe it is. Really great program. I get to meet and work with incredibly talented people and help them diagnose. This is where I am in my business right now or in my project right now. I want to be here. And I say, okay, well, how do we get there? And I help create that roadmap for achieving that outcome. We uh, work together an hour a week through Zoom for 12 weeks with a group of people around them, other entrepreneurs, independent uh, businesses and, and projects. We meet for a week. Sorry. We meet for an hour every week on a video call and help each other get to that outcome. And that's been what I've been spending the majority of my time on for the last two and a half years or so. But recently, I've rolled out a couple other products and offerings underneath the Unreal Collective umbrella. Uh, The main new addition being Freelancing School, which is a set of online courses, a set of online courses for um, learning marketing, sales, and the general business aspects of starting and running a freelance business. Nice. So is this what you wanted to be when you grew up? (laughs) I never knew what I wanted to be when I grew up. And I don't think I still know what I want to be when I grew up. You know, for me, I'm trying to get to a point where I am sustained by the things that I create. I want to get away from uh, just about all service offerings unless it's something I really enjoy doing. I don't imagine that the Unreal Accelerator will go away entirely. It just will probably get more selective and and, um, less frequent. But I want to get to a point where I'm selling books. Uh, maybe I have courses, I'm doing speaking, but activities that are high leverage, more scalable activities. But at the end of the day, all of those things should be serving the audience that I care about, which are people who are trying to build a life of their own design, people who want to make a living doing their own path, making mm-hmm. their own path, people who are building something because they can't help but do that thing. And so I think I'm on the right track, but you know, there's always work to do. So, yeah, you did a lot of things when we first met. You said Unreal Collective is, what, two, two and a half years old now? So did those other things sort of feed into it, or was it just... Well, a lot of the stuff that I did was volunteer, frankly. It was organizing Startup Weekend events. It was helping with Startup Week. It was being a mentor at other accelerators or programs around town. It was serving on a volunteer board called the Create Columbus Commission. A lot of the stuff was volunteer, and so I've pulled back a lot of that. I try to volunteer my time now in places that gets a lot of leverage out of what I bring to the table. A lot of the stuff I was doing early on just needed 
a mind that was task oriented and mostly just a lot of time to input into the system, right? And there are people who can certainly play that role and deserve that experience that it doesn't need to be me and my time. My time is better served helping them connect to people who can, you know, sponsor the events or provide like an unfair advantage that I've built based on my network and the relationships that I have at this point. So I, I pulled back a lot from those activities, but I'm constantly stopping and starting new projects. For the last year and a half, I've been doing a podcast called Upside, focusing on startup communities outside of Silicon Valley. I'm starting a second podcast now. Freelancing School was six months of work after several months of work doing an initial version of it for LinkedIn Learning and Lynda.com. So every time I pair something back, I seem to add something new on, but <laughs> they all get a little bit more aligned, which is great because then they start feeding each other. You know. So it sounds to me like you are the kind of person you're looking for, the entrepreneur who can't help but totally. create stuff. Totally. So you're looking for you from a few years back. Like that's yeah, I who just Unreal Collect was trying to help. I just think it's more fun to work with people who are building something out of pure interest, you know? And I wish that we had more of a discussion as not even just a country or a culture, but as a species of, okay, we have built incredible technology how do we leverage that technology to now allow human beings to pursue the things they actually care to do as opposed to being in what is largely an industrial corporate machine of how we even like raise our kids, (laughs) you know? (laughs) So the people who are rebelling against that and who are saying, nope, I'm going to find my own way and I'm going to make a living doing work that I care about and, and using the skills that I, I earned through, through projects and work that really is important to me, I would rather work with them. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Basic format is three questions about how you got Unreal Collective basically to be as successful as it is today. So question number one, before or at the beginning of starting Unreal Collective, what scared you? But now it's no big deal. The scariest part for me, and this is true for a lot of people who are just getting started working for themselves, is making money. Mm-hmm. I had I had a lot of hang-ups with money, still have a lot of hang-ups with money, but the first ingredient to making money as someone who's self-employed is selling yep and selling is hard and selling is scary and I think in the Midwest especially there's almost an ethos growing up for a lot of people that selling means somebody is winning and somebody is using or somebody is losing Mm -hmm. it's it's the the used car salesman idea and a lot of people get hung up on that idea that if I sell something to somebody I am tricking them or cajoling them or pulling one over and that's just not true you have to shift your mindset from a winner and a loser to saying, how do I find a way to position this as a win for both of us? And very genuinely so. You have to understand that anybody who pays for anything, they tell themselves a story before they pay for it. For a long time, I had a, a sign on my wallet, like a sticky note, an envelope label. Mm-hmm. And I put it on my wallet that said, why are you buying this? So every time I pull out my wallet, I I registered consciously to myself, why am I buying this thing I'm about to buy? And that wasn't for purposes of being cost conscious. It was for purposes of recognizing the story I was telling myself about why I was buying the thing I was buying. If I was buying a cup of coffee, it was, this will give me energy or this will help me focus. If I was getting an Uber, it was, well, I don't want to drive or there's no parking or I want to, you know, be safe. Every time you spend money, you tell yourself a story as to why you're spending money on that thing. And that's true for your customers too. 
and it's rooted in a real pain point or a real need that they have. So you need to understand the stories that your customers are telling themselves and say, yes, I can solve that problem or I can do that for you. Because telling that story is a justification of why is the outcome of this purchase worth more than the cash equivalent that I'm trading for it. So that's really interesting. You sort of used um, like when you're scared of spiders and they're like, well, here's a tiny dead spider in a jar. Like get used to being able to look at that without having a panic attack and make you know, just uh, what's that called? Exposure therapy mm-hmm. or something like that? You sort of did exposure therapy on yourself for being able to find a way to talk about why services are valuable and, and how to talk about them and how to think about it. Yeah. And I, th- I think, I mean, I'm fascinated by psychology, human psychology. But you have to understand, anytime someone buys something, the, the headline is, this solution, this thing is worth more to me, whether because it solves a problem or it gives me a feeling, than the cash that's in my pocket right now. And so as long as you believe that, and you believe that whatever you're offering, whether it's a product or service, mm-hmm. is worth the price that somebody is paying for it, you should feel compelled to tell as many people as possible, this is available to you. And if it's worth the trade of money for you, here it is. Because you're not pushing anything on anybody. You are offering your help, you're offering your product, you're saying, I know that you're looking for something to solve this problem for you. You're looking for something to complete the loop on the story you're telling yourself, and here it is. Well, and people are more than happy to recommend something they know works to a friend, but it's weird when it's your own thing that is harder. Yeah. So when you, even when you know you've got a product that can solve somebody's problem, it seems pushy, I guess, to offer your own instead of yeah. well, recommending something. It's The burden of proof is a little bit on you as the seller to, to say, I know you. Mm-hmm. I know the story you're telling yourself, and let me repeat that back to you. Does that sound like you? And if you can do that, uh, and not you know verbatim like that, I know the story you're telling yourself. Let me tell you to you. Yeah, but that if would you're, be a little weird. But if you're saying, <laughs> if you're saying, I know that you struggle with bucketing time to do the important work of growing your business versus being in the day to day. Does that sound? Does that sound right? A lot of business owners are going to say, Yeah, yeah, I really struggle with working on the business versus in the business. And you say, well, I have a solution that if you trade your cash for that solution, I'll solve that problem for you. People are going to say, okay, you understand my needs and you have something that can solve that. Now they're going to go into sort of the due diligence or, you know, questions motive. Well, how? And that's a good place to be because as long as you can continue to answer that, you've already shown this is for people like you. And they say, okay, now prove it. And if you can back that up with referrals, with data, with uh, testimonials and case studies, then you're good. But, you know, it's it's on the seller a little bit to show that you understand the customer and, and lead the process and saying, I know this is worthwhile for you because I've seen it work for people just like you. So besides sort of getting yourself comfortable with your own experience as a consumer and just sort of reminding yourself that this must be what everybody's going through on the other side, what else did you do to make selling not scary or not feel icky to you? Um, I was told no a lot of times. (laughs) So you just tried it. Yeah. I mean, at the end of the day, sales is also a numbers game. Mm -hmm. And you're going to get some number of no's versus some number of yeses out of any grouping of, you know, tries. Like if you, the best, you know, salesmen have less than 100% conversion rate, right? Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. So being told no is just a part of the game. And every time you hear no in the beginning, it hurts, and you take it personally, and it sucks. 
And you don't have those referrals or testimonials yet. Yeah. So it's hard, and I won't, I won't deny that. But every time you hear no, it loses a little bit of power, and you build a little bit more of a thick skin. And then somebody will tell you yes. And then you start learning something even more. You start learning, okay, what does it look like when somebody says yes? Why did they say yes? What are the patterns? Was it how I approached them? Was it how I explained what I'm selling? Was it uh, the type of person that they are? Was it the price point? What are the patterns that led to that yes? And then you can improve your targeting of who you're talking to and who are you are spending your time sharing the solution with because all selling has three levers, targeting, messaging, and frequency. You have to be sharing your service to the right target. If I help business owners and I'm pitching it to... Um, a bunch of people who have a nine to five, I'm going to get told no pretty much across the board. If I have the right targets, I still have to have the correct message for them. I still have to be able to tell that story with them and say, I understand you and I understand your needs and here's why this will help you. That's the messaging. Mm -hmm. And then frequency is very, very rarely does somebody make a decision to purchase something on the first touch point they have with that idea, that product or that service. On average, as a Salesforce Salesforce research, on average, it takes seven touch points. And so frequency means even if you have the right target, even if you have the right message, you have to get in front of them and have multiple interactions with them before they will jump for the most part. Now, those things all work in tandem. If you have bad targeting, no amount of messaging and frequency will work with you, work for right. you. If you have the wrong messaging, no amount of frequency will work right. You know, you have to dial all those things in. But once you understand who your customer is, once you understand how you help them, and uh, how you approach the conversation, what the sales process looks like, how often you're touching that prospect, then you really start to dial it in and you hear yeses more often. And you start to say, oh, wow, people do find this valuable. And then you see their outcomes. And you say, oh, wow, this person who bought my product, who bought my service, is now giving me glowing reviews and they're referring people to me. I must have been dead on with my value proposition and my price. Then it becomes really easy to hear no, because no just means it's not for me. That's fine. I know this is for some people, and it's not for other people. And I'm going to spend more time talking to people who I think it's for. And if they say no, okay, it wasn't for them. You know, you have to have a level of abundant thinking mm -hmm. to say, even when I hear no, there are a ton of people out there who could use my help. And I'm going to keep finding them. So before, when it was scary, clearly it was probably hard to actually make any income. Um, it sounds like maybe you did some sort of analytical along the way, like kept track of who said no and exactly what process you tried and things like that. Does that? Uh, I wish I could say that was true. I mean, it, it became more of a pattern matching and, and uh, gut feeling type of thing in the beginning. And in the beginning, look, most of the people I worked with were people I already knew. They're mm -hmm. people who already had trust in me. I could overcome bad messaging and sometimes even bad targeting if they already had trusted me and they knew I'm going to do right by them. You know, I'm going to go over and above to make sure that this process is worthwhile for them and they find value out of that. They knew that. And then you learn everyone you work with, you learn a little bit more. So if the first group of people I worked with were mostly friends, you know, over time that becomes more second degree connections and third degree connections. People that start hearing you without having talked to someone who had an immediate experience, but it's going to start with people who are close to you. I call these people your advocates. Most of the time when you're just getting started in a business, you really have to lean on your advocates, whether they're referring you to people who think that, that uh, you could help or whether you're working with them directly. When I first quit my job and went out on my own, my first two freelance clients were just very close friends of mine who had made the jump before and they recognized that what I was doing was going to be hard and if they could help me 
learn and experience making money on my own early on, that was going to be powerful for me. And it was. But not everybody you know is your target customer. And I think sometimes that's a little confusing for Absolutely people. Absolutely not, yeah. Like, you know, my dad is not about to start. Yeah a new entrepreneurial business today. So I wouldn't try to sell him my business consulting nor your Unreal Collective. Like, it's just not for him. Even though he may be a huge supporter. Totally. But your dad may know somebody. He may. Yeah, that's true. He may may have a couple of friends that says, well, this sounds like my friend Tom. You know, he's working on this. Let Let me set up a call. A lot of times it is going to people who are close to you and saying, hey, I'm doing this new thing. I'm trying out this new business. Do you know anybody who needs this kind of help or, you know, kind of has this... Uh, avatar or this they they run this type of business or they do this type of thing do you know anybody like that and oftentimes it's just an introduction to somebody and then it's still on you to sell them on the idea but at least it came with a warm introduction the question number two is what did you spend a lot of time on at the beginning but now not so much so two things come to mind here one of them being that I used to go to a lot of networking events which I don't do nearly as much anymore and we can talk about that more if you want and the second being that I did a lot of reading and listening to audiobooks and podcasts, a lot of consuming of information. And that's valuable to a point. But what I what I came to learn was the time that I spent consuming information was time that I was taking away from my opportunity to produce things, produce work, mm-hmm. produce content of my own, produce thoughts of my own. And that's some of the most high value work that I do is making things and producing things myself. And so instead of doing all this just-in-case learning, like, okay, I'm going to listen to this podcast about how this person got a publishing deal, just in case someday I want to do that. Sure. Instead of focusing on that type of content, it was things that were speaking directly to problems I was trying to solve at that time, just-in-time learning. Much more high value at the time. Uh, you know, the just-in-case stuff is, is speculative. You don't know if and when you'll need that. And sometimes that's nice because it might connect some dots in your brain that you weren't thinking about before. But... Or again, just generate creative ideas. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But again, that, that time's coming from somewhere. Your time is a zero-sum game. Yeah. And every hour you're allocating to something is an hour you're taking away from something else. Everything you say yes to, you're by default saying no to everything else during that period of time. And so I, I stopped consuming as much because there's just a lot I wanted to build, a lot I wanted to do. Yeah, and I mean, I'm happy if people listen to this podcast, but... Uh, yeah, I agree. My number one piece of advice once people do have a mm-hmm. thing that they want to run with, an idea that they really feel is, is made for them, it does take focus. You can't be learning about all the things anymore. And I do listen to a lot of audio-based things still because it can be a secondary activity. You know, reading a book, you can't, oh, dri- you can't read a book while you're driving. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you can't read a book while you're at the gym. So this is a medium that I really enjoy because you can layer this on top of other tasks that aren't very um, thought-oriented, which is, which is great. And you can certainly do that in time periods where you can't be productive anyway. You know? Sure. But I was, doing, you know, I was doing a lot of just reading during the day when I was starting out. Because you start out and you're doing your own thing and you have an idea, but it takes a while to spin up and understand, like, what should I be spending my time on? What, what's working? And, and how do I get this thing running? If you don't have any clients, like... What do you do with that time? Yeah, so you spend your time basically reading on all the ideas of all the things yeah. that you could do. And a lot of people will hide behind what I would call fake work. Uh, they think, well, I have all this time. I don't have clients. Maybe if I just made my website a little bit better, you know, mm-hmm. but they're, they're professional services. And your website rarely is 
the entry point for someone saying, yep, I'm going to work with this person. A lot of times it'll play back up to meeting you and saying, okay, let me see if this person seems legitimate. Sure. But rarely is a website what is just selling somebody on, on, on work that's not like a retail or e-commerce product. So that's, that's an activity that I think is overemphasized when if you need clients, you should be talking to people. You should be meeting people. And you should be sharing what you do with them so you can build a larger group of advocates that you can lean on and get some of that initial work. Sure. So I do think there's, both with networking and with consuming information, there's probably a tipping point. So how would you describe the point where mm-hmm. you, you're starting to consume too much stuff and it's an avoidance instead yeah. of still a good thing? Because when you don't know, you know how to even set up a one-page website, this is still good to be going and doing research, I think. Yeah. And I would, if it's setting up a one-page website and that's something you're working on right now, I think that's productive. If you're trying to solve for a problem right now, that's productive. If you're just doing it in interest and curiosity, that needs to live in a bucket of your dispensable time, whether it's early in the morning, whether it's later in the evening, whether it's on the weekends, you know. Just don't consume information and pretend that it is working to build the business if you can't draw the direct line and how it's doing that. And I like that idea, dispensable time. So, you know, yeah, the time that isn't you working on your business, it's fine to keep doing this forever. Totally, totally. And the great thing about being a business owner is you can totally mix up what your day looks like. You know, if you want to spend eight hours a day working, working however you define that and have some number of hours as dispensable time, you don't have to spend your working hours nine to five. You can spend some of your working hours six to ten and Mm -hmm. you can go work out in the middle of the day and you can make some of that your dispensable time and that's great but just understand that if you're learning out of curiosity and just interest and it's not solving a business problem or helping you build something then it's not really that productive and the networking side of things once you networking i think is a little different yeah once Networking can be the best way for you to build your business. You know, mm-hmm. for, for client services, you run on relationship selling. And networking is one of the quickest ways to meet people and start forming a relationship. If that's working, if you're saying, okay, every time I go to an event, I pull up, you know, a handful of leads. I have a handful of conversations after that. And a couple of those turn into clients, it seems. Awesome. Like, that is a very productive activity for your business, and you should do that. If you get to a point where the clients that you're working with didn't come from those activities, mm-hmm. then you should question the value of those activities. You know, I, I talk to a lot of business owners who are client services, and they think, okay, I need to get clients, which means marketing, and marketing means social media. I need to have an account on all of these things. I need to have a Twitter, an Instagram, a Facebook page, a Snapchat. I need all these things. I need to spend time on it. And honestly, you don't. You know, if you're doing really well and you're getting clients from networking or from referrals from the clients that you're working with now, just focus in the areas that are already working and tune those up. I've never, you know, seen a law firm tweet something and said, "Gotta work with that law firm." <laughs> it's just, it's just not the way that a lot of people go about finding client services from social media. You know, they're not going there with the intent to buy most of the time, and certainly not high dollar consulting or something. Sure. But going back to sort of um, earlier, you talked about like you've got this network, both of advocates who know you and just of people that you can help connect other, that you can help connect your customers with. So, because not everybody's customers 
go to networking events, right? Not everything's sort of B2B or looking for entrepreneurship. Like if you're selling cookies, I'm not sure that an you know, IT networking event is where you're going to sell them. But I think there's a, a, a different layer of value there. Uh, say more. So I'm saying, tell me how you think you know all these people that are useful to your entrepreneurs, no matter what they're doing, even if they're selling cookies or paintings or something like that. And did any of that come from the time you used to spend networking or the time you still spend networking? Totally. I think networking was a completely necessary activity for me for a very long time. The tipping point for me was I no longer needed to go out looking for people to have meetings on my schedule. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times networking was, okay, let's get some prospects, let's line up meetings, let's talk with them. But I got to a point where I had enough advocates here in town that were sending me enough introductions and in, in leads organically that I didn't have to go out prospecting them myself. Now, there's the argument to say prospecting should never stop. You should always be going out and doing those <laughs> things. But again, I have a finite amount of time. So if my schedule is being filled consistently and I allocate 10, 10 plus hours a week of meeting with people and having one-to-one -one discussions, if I'm already allocating that time from inbound leads and prospects, I'm not going to spend more time going out and networking if that's already working. And that's kind of an ideal place to be in is when you have sure. people coming to you and that only comes from having this distributed army of advocates out in the world who know your work, who like what you do, who will speak highly about you. And usually that comes from years of going out and proactively building that advocate network. So I wouldn't say if you're starting from ground zero today to avoid networking events, mm -hmm. be very targeted in them. Understand who you're serving and where they hang out and why you're going to each place that you're going. But you know, you'll get to a point if you do that consistently and you're meeting with a half dozen, a dozen people a week, that over time you have a lot of people out in the world who know you and can speak highly of what you do as long as you, you know have a good experience and good interaction in those meetings. So Back in the day when you spent a lot of time networking, how many hours a week were you networking? I was going to events at least two nights a week, probably more like three nights a week. Sometimes there'd be morning events, and that would be about it. But I also, um, you know, organized things. Mm -hmm. So this is, it take, it's a lot of work. <laughs> That's a lot more work, yeah. It's a lot of work, but when you construct the room that you want to be in, that can be really powerful because you're not going to, it's not as hit or miss. Like you are literally organizing the room. You know who's going to be there. You're inviting the type of person you want to talk to. It's very high value. When you've put that room together, when you are the reason that people have gathered, it creates a level of authority behind you. People are grateful for that. People start saying, what's, what's this person up to? Why, why did they do this? It's really easy to have one-on-one -on -one meetings in with anybody who is in that room. And often, you know, this, this is counterintuitive, but sometimes the best thing you can do to build a relationship with somebody is introduce them to somebody else. Mm -hmm. Whether that's in a group format and a room that you've organized or one-to-one, -one, especially one-to-one, -one, because if you send an introduction between two people and that spurs a meeting between them, when they sit down, they're going to look very quickly for common ground first. What is the shared experience that we have? What is the common ground we have to start building this relationship on? And the easiest thing that they're aware of is that they both know you. Mm -hmm. So if you introduce them, they sit down, they're going to say, hey, how, did you, how do you know Rachel? And they're going to spend the first five or ten minutes talking about how they know you. And they're going to have a great feeling about you. They're going to be grateful you brought them together. And 
all you did was send an email. <laughs> so that is a form of networking I don't think nearly enough people take advantage of. And when you do send an email intro, for instance, or any intro, when you're introducing two people, that's an amazing opportunity to speak really highly of both of them and help them both you know, feel lucky to meet the other and feel excited to meet the other and that person feel good about the way you introduce them. So that's interesting. That's sort of like a third benefit, a third kind of networking, if you will, because it isn't all going to happen. Yeah. So many times I'll get a, a text or an email that says, hey, I'll keep this short. Jay, meet Rachel. And there's utility in that. Now I have your contact information and we can meet. But I don't have any context as to who you are or what you do, where on the other side of the coin, if they said, hey, Jay, meet Rachel. Rachel's been doing this uh, consulting company for years. She's starting a great podcast. I worked with Rachel, and she did amazing work. Um, she wants to talk to you about X, Y, and Z. Rachel, meet Jay. Jay does A, B, and C. He runs Unreal Collective. He has a podcast also. Um, I went through Unreal Collective, and it's an amazing program. We're going to have a much more constructive conversation out of that. We're both feeling some warm fuzzies, saying, oh, my gosh, this person really cares about us. They know what we do. Um, they said nice things about us. And people will just skip that step. A lot of people won't send intros at all, but it's such an amazing opportunity to build relationships with people. Yeah, that's a good point. Simple, but easy to forget to do, too. Yeah. Easy to not think of, I suppose. Yeah. Um, so instead of those events, what are you spending your evenings and mornings on these days? Building. Uh, freelancing school was a beast. It's three courses, on average, 16 lessons each. Um, they're about two and a half hours long of runtime each. And it's the best stuff that I've learned as, you know, uh, a freelancer or service-based professional myself. It's the best practices of what I've seen from my clients in terms of marketing, selling, and setting up their business. It's the best work I've ever done. But it was a ton of work. 50, 56 lessons meant 56 PowerPoint presentations that I did screen capture and uh, webcam video over doing the videos themselves and editing the video and putting it into a hosting platform and creating the courses, creating the payment page, creating the landing page, creating the marketing page. It's a lot of work. Yeah. That's got to come from somewhere. So, you know, while I make most of my living these days on client-based services, I can't bill all of my time or I lose the opportunity to build things like that. And if I want to get to a place where I'm selling products, I have to carve that out. And that came out of networking time for the most part. Also, I've been doing a podcast for a year and a half, which I told you. That's its own form of networking. Mm -hmm. Kind of a kind of a networking hack. Like a little bit. <laughs> incredible, incredible excuse to meet really great people. And those interviews will block off a minimum of an hour for each of them. We've published eighty five episodes at this point. That's amazing. And we have a lot of conversations that we don't record. So all of that has replaced my going out to meetups style of networking. It's a lot more proactive. It's reaching out to people directly that I personally know I want to meet as opposed to going to a space, helping to meet some type of person or some specific person who I think will be in that room. So it sounds like these days instead of randomly networking and instead of you know consuming information, you're spending your time creating content and creating information for other people to consume. Um, so question number three, what have you let go of? It sounds like you're still doing a lot. Is there anything yeah. you've outsourced? The main things that I've outsourced at this point are post-production for the podcast. And it's hard because I love doing stuff like that. I love doing audio editing. I love doing video editing. I love doing website development and editing. But some of those things I got to let go of, 
especially audio editing, because if I can pay an audio engineer 15 to $50 an hour, and usually it's like 15 to $25 an hour, that is well worth, first of all, he's gonna get it done in fewer hours than it would take me to do it, because he's better at it. Mm -hmm. And you know, if I'm billing myself at 150 to $200 per hour, that math doesn't work out. If I'm spending my time doing audio engineering, I am automatically saying no to paid work at a much higher rate. So I've outsourced that. I've outsourced uh, making transcripts for the episodes also. Sure. We run it through some AI and then we have that cleaned up. I was doing the cleaning up personally, but that was taking me an hour and a half to three hours per episode. I can outsource that for $5 an hour, which is crazy. So I've outsourced those things. I have technologically outsourced some other aspects of what I do, specifically scheduling. I know a lot of people who have an assistant or a virtual assistant that help them in scheduling. I've just gotten really good at connecting my calendar to Calendly and mm-hmm. keeping my blocks of time that's available very intentional so that if someone wants to meet with me, I just send them a Calendly link um, and I'm, I'm good. You know, They can't double book anything. It's only on days that I'm willing to have meetings, which is typically Tuesdays and Thursdays right now. But I think one of the biggest ways that I hold myself back is still not outsourcing more because anything that touches my world, sure. <laughs> I am doing, you know, whether it's, whether it's setting up my travel for this trip to Denver I have in September now, that is a paid trip from Denver Startup Week. They had some ambassadors. They brought me in as an ambassador, but I still have to book that travel and I had to fill out this form and I had to send them a headshot. And that's something that I could probably very effectively outsource to an assistant and be the better for it. But I, I just haven't taken the leap, and I think it holds me back a little bit. So any ideas why you haven't taken that leap? It's this constant question of, will I invest the, the time up front to find, vet, hire, train somebody, and let them do this? Sure. Or should I just take the two hours and finish this right now? And I've been playing that game of kick the can for two years. At some point, you know... I know intellectually that it makes more sense to invest the time over the course of a week to hire, onboard, and train somebody because that time will easily be made, made up on the back end for itself mm-hmm. over the next coming weeks. And I haven't done it. And I don't know if it's fear. I don't know if it's uh, part of it is cash flow and worrying about a commitment to sure. an employee. Um, even a part-time employee, even an hourly employee. You know, I don't want to hire somebody part-time and not be able to say, you know, you can expect 10 hours, 20 hours, some consistent number. And if I don't fill that, that's hurting them in a way. Especially if they're holding time for you, yeah. Yeah. And I, I want somebody, since a lot of the work that I do is so creatively focused, I don't want just an administrative assistant. I want someone that can do um, creative problem-solving which is a more scarce skill set that I'm looking for, which means that person is naturally going to be more expensive. Mm-hmm. I would rather pay for somebody who is better, which is going to cost me more. Um, and that's a scary thing as a solopreneur. It is. Is there any concerns? You, I mean, so you talk about onboarding, so I think that's what I was about to ask, like the concern that like somehow they won't do things the way that you would do them. Somehow they won't, they won't be as good as being you. Totally. Of course I have that concern. I mean, I have that concern about anything I touch. Everything that I do, there's some part of my brain that says, you can solve this and other people can't. And that's just not true. 
well, especially like sound engineering, you love it, right? Yeah. And I assume you were good at it. Yeah. But you've already said the math doesn't actually work out. And, yeah. And those people, that's what they do. Yeah. This is not true. And I, I think I've had some experiences, you know, a lot of people when they're getting started, they'll work with interns. I've worked with a ton of interns sure. over my life. And I've had varying degrees of success with those interns with the level of autonomy that I want to give people. Mm-hmm. There has to be a level of self-direction and initiative that you want somebody to take, but that comes with career experience and it comes with um, a more scarce skill set that is going to be a higher hourly rate. And unless I'm willing and able to pay that, I'm not going to get the results that I want. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. People do like to be paid for their work. Yeah. <laughs> so the things you have let go of, though, you're pretty happy, it sounds like. Like you would do it again. For sure. It's, I don't think the show would work. I don't think I would be able to consistently put out a show every week if we didn't outsource post-production. And I'm sure there's an analogy to a lot of the stuff that I do. So someday you will outsource more. <laughs> That's right. What would you like, if, if people were just going to take away one or two things from, from hearing this, what would you like them to remember? We spent a lot of time talking about sales. Mm-hmm. And so there are two acronyms that I want to leave listeners with to think about sales. The first being eyes and ears. If you are a creative, if you are a service-based professional and you run on people and relationships and client work, remember the acronym eyes and ears. And that stands for empower, sorry, that stands for establish your elevator speech, eyes, establish your elevator speech, and ears stands for empower advocates to refer sales. So establish your elevator speech and empower advocates to refer sales. That means you need to get really good at talking specifically and succinctly about what you do Mm -hmm. and then you need to be able to say that to people so that they can remember it and be a productive advocate for you out in the world and refer sales to you if you are trying to explain what you do and you can't do it very well the person you're talking to is not going to be able to represent you to someone else who may need your help when i say i help creatives make a living freelancing i'm looking for people to hang on the words creative freelancing the idea of making money and it's short I know some people will just say, I'm a copywriter. Okay, now I know that you're a copywriter, but if someone I'm talking to says, hey, I need a copywriter, there are going to be 10 people that come to mind. And you want to be the first person on recall for some group of people, or you're not going to get the referral. So the more specific you can be, I do copywriting for B2B SaaS companies. I do email onboarding sequences for B2B SaaS companies. I do uh, website conversion copywriting for e-commerce companies. Things like that that are more specific are easier to refer and give people, you know, productive tools to be an advocate for you. So eyes and ears, you can just remember it as you need more people being in eyes and ears for your business out in the world. The second acronym is ABC, Advocate Before Client. When you meet with anybody, your first goal should be, I want this person to like me, I want this person to trust me, and I want to create an advocate in them over time, someone that's going to... Uh, speak highly of me and recommend my work or recommend me as a person. Mm-hmm. Nobody goes straight to client without first buying into you as an individual. So even your clients need to be advocates before they can be clients. And if you go into a meeting saying, I'm going to make this person a client in this meeting, you're probably going to fail and you've just lost an opportunity to build another advocate. Because if you think about advocates first over time and you play the long run, the long game, you can build hundreds of advocates in your community, in the country, who know your work, who can productively 
help you uh, generate sales. But you have to make people advocates first. Nice. Well, it's been awesome talking with you. Um, do you want to mention how people can find more about Unreal Collective? Sure. I would just say search for me, Jay Klaus, on anything. Um, very easy to find online, jklaus.com, at jklaus on social media. That will link to Unreal Collective. It will also link, link to the other things that I'm involved in. You can search Unreal Collective. I'm sure it will be the first result. Um, but I would look for me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thanks, Rachel. Thanks for listening. Visit greatertogetherpodcast.com for more episodes, to submit a question for next season, to recommend a guest, and to leave feedback. Greater Together is brought to you by Greater Columbus Consulting, helping focus your vision, organize your operations, and grow your organization. Greater Columbus Consulting specializes in social enterprises, nonprofits that want to capitalize on their strengths, and for-profit businesses that are working towards a higher purpose.